0: revelatory gifts continue. That position faces some uh, interpretive hurdles, perhaps we could call them. Uh, And I first want to look at the hurdle of defining biblical prophecy. All right, so a continuationist would face this hurdle. If you are a continuationist, then you will have a definition of prophecy in the New Testament that has to be different than the Old Testament. Uh, So let's, I guess we should start with what is the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament? How do we define prophecy in the Old Testament? Well, it's not complicated. We would simply say God, through his servants, called prophets, uh, Peter would reference holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, uh, God, through his servants, gave divine revelation, which was authoritative and completely true. Two questions emerge in the Old Testament. How could you test a prophet and his message, and what would happen if you were shown to be a false prophet? So, Old Testament definition, God, through human voices, gave God's revelation, and it was accurate, and it was true. It had complete authority because of its truth from God. Deuteronomy chapter 18 gives us some insight into how the people were to respond to prophets. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20, we read, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak Or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? How do we know if these guys are saying something that's false? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So two questions are answered. What happens if you're shown to be a false prophet? Well, if it's bad enough, if you're, if you're speaking against what God has said or leading people away from God, you could be put to death. And the test of a prophet is whether or not his message is completely true. Any untruth, doesn't mean, oh, the prophet misspoke. It means you don't call him a prophet. The prophet is defined by accurate and authoritative divine revelation. So here's the problem. In order to have the gift of prophecy today, which is the continuationist position, you must change the definition of prophecy so that you do not undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. So I want us to think of very like-minded theologians. Uh, They're going to embrace the doctrines of grace, have a high view of God's sovereignty and the salvation of sinners. Um, They're going to be committed to right interpretation. So these are people that we would fellowship with. These are people that could join our church You would enjoy their churches and their preaching. And yet on this matter of the gifts, they might see it a little differently. So we're not talking about crazy fanatics out there or heretics. We're talking about really good, sound theologians. uh, And yet they are going to say that the definition of prophecy in the New Testament is different than the old. And it's because they are committed to the authority of Scripture. They recognize that if this is our sole sufficient authority, as the church has said for two millennia now, then we cannot set next to that divine revelation that is both completely true and completely authoritative. Otherwise, we're not much different than Rome, having a pope who can say, this is what God has said, or other cults who would say, I have a word from God, it's authoritative and it's true. So these Good theologians who understand the doctrine of the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture recognize that if we have prophets today speaking for God, that's a problem that undermines sola scriptura, Scripture alone, as our authority. So, the the result becomes what I would call an overanalysis, and and this conclusion that. well, well, prophecy must be different in the New Testament. That way we can still have prophecy. It seems to me, though, that there is a foregone conclusion. I believe the gifts continue, and therefore when I run into a problem, instead of changing my position, I'll just change the definition of uh, prophecy. And really that becomes the crux of the matter. Is there something in the scriptures that would push us towards a redefining of New Testament prophecy. So in other words, if we were to insist on prophecy still happening today, and if we hold to the authority of scripture alone, that there can be no new revelation that we set alongside God's word, then prophecy must be something other than divine revelation that is authoritative and completely true. And that's what they say, continuationists, about New Testament prophecy. It's not necessarily true. Uh, it can be inaccurate. And therefore, we have to judge those prophecies carefully to decide if they are true or not. Perhaps the most Recognized theologian in this camp of extremely conservative, orthodox, reformed kind of people, we would learn from uh, would be uh, Wayne Grudem. Uh, he's written a systematic theology that is both comprehensive but incredibly accessible. Uh, it's it's not only for a deep student, you know, in seminary. It's for anyone. Uh, In the pew, you could read it to your junior hires and it would be completely understandable. A Fantastic work. It's used all around the world at all levels of schooling. Wayne Grudem says that New Testament prophecy is fallible. Unlike Old Testament prophecy, it can be mixed with error. He suggests that the phrase, thus says the Lord of the Old Testament, could be replaced in the New Testament with, quote, I think the Lord is suggesting something like. And that would be the definition of New Testament prophecy. But I think even to fresh ears hearing that, you're thinking, I don't know. Thus says the Lord sounds pretty weighty. And to say, I think the Lord is suggesting something like, or the Lord has brought this to mind maybe for somebody here today. It just seems to lack the old word, unction, um, the weight that we would think of if we are thinking somehow God is communicating to us. Continuationists are comfortable defining New Testament prophecy as, quote, God-given impressions to share a particular truth for somebody, end quote. Uh, We're not opposed to that. To God-given impressions, it's odd language. It makes it sound a little mystical. But if, if you think back to your days of hearing preachers say, you know, I was going to preach this, and God led me to, to this passage. Well, whether we call that God led you or God-given impression, it's the same thought. We all understand this idea of feeling as if we were prompted to, or you know. <sighs> some thought comes into your head to speak to somebody in the lobby and you had no plans on talking to them. You're like, oh, I, I should ask them how they're doing. And, and God uses that to bring encouragement to someone. We, we understand the spirit can work that way. But are, are we really going to be comfortable arguing for this big idea of prophecy as a revelatory gift that still exists today, but then defining it as something that's fallible, it's an impression from God, uh, could be mixed with error. It's a prompting that I maybe the Lord is suggesting something like. It just, it just lacks the kind of weight and intensity and clarity that so much of even Wayne Grudem's writing on, on all other things doctrinal, uh, it has, has. Um, but on this matter, it just seems to dissolve in front of us in this argument for redefining Old Testament prophecy to something different in the New Testament. I think continuationists bear this heavy burden of proof to show that prophecy is different. Uh, there must be some text that tells us how it has changed, when it changed, to what degree it's changed, uh, because things do change in the Old to New Covenant structure. Um, This is where we would differ with our Presbyterian brothers regarding baptism. They argue for a strong continuity between the covenants. If if we circumcised our kids at the earliest age, a week old, in the old covenant, surely we should baptize them in the new because of continuity. It just flows. Yet the other argument would say, but wait a minute, are you not recognizing how much changed? From one covenant to the next, we don't offer animals anymore either because of this great incontinuity of one sacrifice for all instead of sacrifices daily. Uh, So much of Hebrews is telling us there's connection in picture to reality, to symbol, to fulfillment. There's connection there in the theme, Lamb of God to Lamb slain. But there's incredible discontinuity in the fact that this is so much better. Uh, And so we would argue not that we baptize kids like we circumcised them in the Old Covenant. We would say, no, it seems like the discontinuity of Scripture is articulated in 11 of the 12 New Testament references to baptism, all referencing faith at the core of that decision to be baptized. So, we do think there is biblical justification for changing, for a discontinuity, for something a little different. But there again, does this mean uh, those guys are crazy? No, most of my theological education was from theologians that would embrace the Presbyterian view of baptism. Uh, So, it's the same here. this theme of uh, continuationism versus cessationism is, is not something you're going to take out your sword and fight over. Uh, this would be a conversation with a brother uh, over meals and coffees and, and, and much unity. Uh, however, I think we're right to, to keep asking when, whenever we don't agree with someone, even if we might be wrong, to say, okay, you need to show me in the scripture where you, where you justify that. And again, I think the burden of proof is on those who want to see the gift of prophecy continuing to have to give the evidence for a redefinition of New Testament prophecy. And to be clear, uh, you're not going to find a theologian in this conservative, reformed camp who's a continuationist saying, no, 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 We we don't redefine New Testament prophecy. We're not charging them with this and they're denying it. They're saying, no, th- that's absolutely right. Um, it's changed in the New Testament. And they seek to show that uh, as best they can. So we're not, we're not setting up a straw man here and attacking it. We're, we're simply taking their understanding. We must change the definition of New Testament prophecy so that we don't have some kind of papal authority. Pastors or anyone else saying, I have divine revelation from God and it's authoritative. You have to listen to it. That's not uh, what we believe. All right, um, any other thoughts here? One other. By redefining New Testament prophecy, continuationists are arguing for the cessation of Old Testament prophecy. It's a catch in their thinking. We are cessationists. We believe the gifts continue, except for the Old Testament gift of prophecy, because we're redefining it for the New Testament. Um, Which again, it just kind of funnels back down to, okay, if we could just embrace the gifts as defined in scripture are real and yet, let's recognize there may be a temporary nature wrapped up in some of these gifts. If we could embrace that, then it doesn't seem as troubling to think, okay, the gift of prophecy was there and clearly In this transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant, read uh, 1 Corinthians, there's still a lot going on with prophetic work happening because admittedly you get to like 1 Corinthians 11 and we're scratching our heads thinking, what do we do with this passage about head coverings and it's telling us that when women pray and prophesy, they should have their head covered. What do we always debate about there? We always debate whether women should have their heads covered and we never give any attention to, well, if we're going to argue that detail of the account, how come we're not arguing for women to pray and to give prophecy by whatever definition, old or new, uh, you want to use? So if we would recognize that in that era, these gifts were functioning and yet they're temporary, so much of some of those passages could kind of feel a little more manageable, Uh, and and maybe we could wrap our minds around it a little more if we simply recognized this study so far is, is piling up evidence that there is a temporary nature to some of the gifts, and that's by design. That's not some great loss to the church that we don't have something anymore. Remember, we have a former problem of prophets and apostles being labeled by God as the foundation of the church. And yet we don't argue we're still in the foundational era of the church. We feel we're built on that foundation. We are this New Testament church. And there's one other argument I wanna leave you and then we'll talk a little, get into your thoughts. One other argument against this redefinition of New Testament prophecy. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, So that's a pretty pivotal moment uh, when he preaches there at Pentecost and cites the prophet Joel. He is bridging the gap of Old and New Testaments. And that bridge is built by an Old, from an Old Testament prophet, by an apostle to this New Testament era. And it just seems like if Joel, an Old Testament prophet, was prophesying that there would come a day when God's Spirit would pour it out and sons and daughters would prophesy, it seems like, in Joel's mind, it's the same thing. Now, admittedly, prophets didn't always know exactly the fulfillment of what they were saying. But on this one word, if an Old Testament prophet is saying when the Spirit comes, not just the prophets will prophesy, but all will prophesy, or at least men and women could prophesy, wouldn't we expect that he was using prophecy and prophesy with one definition? Or further, wouldn't we expect Peter to at least clarify that something was different, that he was linking the prophet Joel with any prophecy that would happen in this New Testament era? However, it's going to be a little different. No, Peter cites it as if it's a a continuing definition of prophecy. That prophet said prophecy would happen today when the Spirit is poured out, not just by prophets, but by even our sons and daughters. And so it just seems like even in that moment of Pentecost, when our minds are triggered in so many ways with the miraculous gifts that there's, there is a continuity there of Old Testament prophet speaking of prophecy to come, Peter in that New Testament era saying, yep, he was right and it's happening today and nobody says anything about a redefinition of what prophecy is. It seems we should keep the same definition of prophecy and simply recognize that it had a temporary nature to it. It had an expiration date, at least for its normative use. And if God so chooses to use some human mouthpiece today to give some kind of revelation in some scene, he could certainly do it. Uh, But however we would look at that and observe it and define it, it, it cannot compromise what we believe is the sole authority of Scripture. So I think it's consistent to see the gift of prophecy as having ceased. It was given for a temporary season and for a specific purpose. And now it seems as though if we want to talk about divine revelation that is both authoritative and 100% accurate, we come to the scriptures and not to any person. All right, what questions do you have here? What thoughts? Because there's a lot to think on here. The key argument is we have to change the New Testament definition of prophecy from what it was in the old in order to say that gift continues. Any thoughts, clarifications, experiences? Yeah, let me start here, Heidi, and then. Are you equating prophecy and
1: speaking
2: in tongues?
0: No. We'll look at uh, tongues next here in a short summary. So,
2: cessationists speaking in tongues is different than cessationists on prophecy?
0: So, prophecy would be well, think of what you know of Elijah and Elisha. Um, Thus says the Lord. They had a message from God and delivered it to God's people. They're just like the mouthpiece by which it comes. Um, The gift of tongues, we'll look at in a moment, would be at least in Acts where we'll start, that's speaking a language they don't know, a miraculous gift, both a sign, wow, how did that happen, but also revealing truth to those people that were hearing that. But, yeah, they're two separate arguments. And so... um, prophecy God's message delivered to people tongues the actual means is miraculous in its vehicle Valerie a question yeah
1: so in um, Paul's letter to the Romans he is talking about the gifts and he says having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith so if there's cessation then why is he giving directions to a church group that doesn't even
0: have an apostle? Well, the apostles, he was an apostle though. Right. Um, So I think even when he talks to Timothy and says, you know, exercise the gift that you received with the laying on of hands, I think we're still in this apostolic era where that authority is still being established because, I don't believe in ordination I would lay hands on someone and impart a spiritual gift to them in some way that's different from even what uh, the Holy Spirit would give when we're baptized into the body. Um, I can't say I've looked at every mention of prophecy in the New Testament letters, but the ones that I've looked at, including those lists, more and more to me I'm thinking, okay, this era of the apostolic authority being established is decades long so it's not like it was just cleared up when Peter preached at Pentecost or with the first letter to the church um, this transition is is unlike really anything in our kind of church history this you know these are Old Testament Saints who grew up with animal sacrifices and yet, They also witnessed the life and teaching of Jesus. And now they're hearing the apostles saying that old has worn out like a garment and the new has come. And in our minds, I don't think we can understand like how hard it would be to believe that that could be true, that God is is literally like abandoning this old way of doing things and saying it's waxed old like a garment. Let's do something better. It would, you know, in our day, if somebody said something like that, we would think it was a cult. And yet, God, in this season, is pouring out all of these signs and wonders to confirm that, no, this message spoken by Paul and the other apostles is true. And so I think when he writes to Romans, and says, uh, prophesy, uh, how, how does it say, according to the measure of your faith, um, I think if I were a continuationist, I would argue more like, okay, why does it say that measure of faith? What, does that in any way help us define, redefine New Testament prophecy as based on as much as I understand, I can speak this truth from God to you? Um, because I've seen kind of those kind of phrases used in the argument that the New Testament definition changes. Um, but I would first look at any mention of prophecy, laying on of hands, that imparts a gift to be included in these sign and revelatory gifts that were making sure God's church knew who to listen to and what they were saying was true. I don't know if that answers the question or not, or at least maybe not convincingly.
1: Um, Well, then for clarity, how would a New Testament, New Covenant individual interpret
2: that? sentence?
0: In Paul's day? No, now.
2: Now, in the New Covenant, with revelatory right. gifts
1: having ceased, so from the cessation view, how would you interpret, like, what would prophecy then mean, and by faith, what would that mean?
0: Right, I would say prophecy means divine revelation from God that's authoritative and absolutely true. Um, and so... That's not likely to happen now. Like, I, I don't believe I would tell my sons and daughters, you will prophesy because Joel said so. I would say, no, that was the sign that would be given to that church to know the Spirit has been poured out, and we can know what is absolutely true. Um, so I would simply say, okay, w- much like what we see in Acts, we, we have to keep asking this question regarding revelatory and signed gifts. Okay, is this prescriptive for the New Testament church or is it descriptive of that apostolic era when the great question was, who do we believe and how do we know what they're saying is true? Uh, So I, I, I don't think I would do a lot of interpretation of how I obey that. It would just simply be interpretation of, okay, is that defining the transitional era of a past apostolic ministry or is that telling the church this is what you should do? We'll keep thinking on it. All right. We might be at your house tonight. We could talk some more. All right, Roy. Well, to Valerie's point, it was happening
2: then, and the fact that it was happening then did not mean it did not need to be taught about for then. And if the gift was to cease, then that teaching is null and void today. You don't need to have faith for a gift that does not exist any longer. But it still needed direction in that day as it was being, I mean, you've got 150 years probably of of this kind of of prophecy. I I don't even know what the date that they would take to when it actually started ceasing. I don't know when they started compiling the New Testament uh, to where they had good copies. I think that that may have been cleared down at one of the councils when they actually agreed on what the book should be.
0: But Yeah, clearly there's information, especially in Corinthians, regarding the abuse or the regulation of the gifts. So we know that kind of content is there. But right, as Valerie was asking, okay, but when we see those passages, is there something there for us? That's the question that we're kind of wrestling with. What else? So it sounds
1: like the cessation is view
2: is all based on Scripture has all the revelation that's required, right? Right. It's on Scripture. So that's...
0: That's why the Wayne Grudems, Sam Storms, uh, there's probably others, um, would say that this New Testament prophecy, because it's a gift, it's still weighty, but it, it can't be anything more than... That's why they would use words that seem flimsy, but they don't mean them to be. Like, that would be kind of our maybe biased reading into their definition of an impression. Uh, but they would say that's of the Holy Spirit. So this gift of prophecy is being exercised by the Spirit. They're impressed to share a particular truth. And, and I've seen it done in very broad ways, um, very much offering the truth to someone. Like, maybe this, maybe you need to hear this. And then I've heard it said, like, maybe there's somebody here who's struggling with this and they say a scripture, and so it's it's not a spooky or weird thing if 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 somebody did it, you wouldn't think they were some extreme Pentecostal or something, so uh, I don't want to anyway characterize the continuation continuationist position as something really weird because in my experience, I've heard plenty of pastor from the pulpit say things about impressions or being led that were very similar to what continuationists are saying about the gift of prophecy. Um, and there again, if you're going to redefine it as something other than divine, authoritative, absolutely true, then I, I don't really care to dispute it a whole lot because if you're going to speak truth to people and help them, then so be it. I want to do that too. I might just not call it the gift of prophecy. So it, it really, it, these are good people doing good things and speaking truth and exhorting the church, and yet kind of behind closed doors we meet and we talk about, you're calling that prophecy? And they're like, yeah, how are you not doing, how- why don't you see that? And I'm like, well, I don't see that as prophecy. But then we go out from behind closed doors and share truth and exhort. And so it, it's an in-house conversation, like, that isn't angry and heated, but it is trying to dis- decide, like, okay, can we change this definition or not? Uh, all right, John. So that's kind of what's going through my mind is uh, expository
2: preaching is relating God's word you know, to a to a different you know, to an audience, but somehow it's different than prophecy because it's being constructed in a rational mind of reading God's word. And presenting it. I'm trying to get a difference between prophecy.
0: It's a really good question. Um, how would how would a redefinition of prophecy be different then or is it kind of similar to how we would define preaching? So clearly preaching's in the Bible. Um, boy, I, I, I'd have to even go back and look through some resources. I, I can't even remember if somebody else does help me. Uh, if a continuationist would define the gift of prophecy as preaching. I, I don't know that they would. They might see similarities. But let's face it, if you were to define biblical preaching, you might start kind of walking this fine line or even muddying the waters of divine revelation versus somebody just sharing their ideas. Um, I, I don't see preaching in any way as prophecy, because I'm holding to the, the strict Old Testament definition that I think it does carry over. So I would say preaching isn't authoritative or inerrant. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's authority. The human words, my thought-out sentences that you'll hear this morning, are only authoritative when you can take them and anchor them to the Scripture. Acts 17, you know, the Berean Christians Heard the apostle even preaching and thought, we're going to make sure that's true. Uh, And they anchored his words in scripture. There's the authority. It's derived in so much as the preacher is biblical. Um, So I'm sure there's preachers out there and I'm sure there's camps of thinking that think there's some kind of divine revelation or authority in preaching. Um, But I don't think the Bible communicates it that way. But it, that, it is a good question. The, the definition of preaching will come in eventually to the conversation about prophecy because it's, it's similar. Somehow you're getting God's words to people through humans. So what does that look like? And we would argue preaching communicates God's word, but prophecy and the apostolic ministry was the Holy Spirit spoke through them as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It was a clear clearly something different than what happens every Sunday in pulpits across the world. Um, Roy, then Daniel.
2: I was thinking about uh, 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about the listing of the gifts, and I was trying to think, because I know that that passage has been used as a uh, as a place to emphasize what they would call motivational gifts, uh, gifting of mercy, where you see whatever you do through the eyes of loving another person, through the eyes of the giver, uh, finding the giving opportunity in any situation. I was wondering how that prophecy, because they use that as a kind of a truth teller who's often blunt to the point of cruelty. And I I just went to that passage and I was kind of interested to notice that there was a, Now to each one is the manifestation of the Spirit given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. So that would actually fit their definition of what they want to call prophecy better than the word prophet would.
0: Yeah, because that list uses wisdom, knowledge, almost sounds like other passages on the tongues, which we may or may not get to, Um, regarding the speaking of the language and then an interpreter uh, for those who don't know it. Um, But generally those wisdom and knowledge fall under that broad heading of the revelatory gifts. Uh, In some people's estimation, others just say, no, there is the place for exhortation and the word dwells in you richly so that it spills out in your words of encouragement and such. So when you get to those lists, you know, I could view it in, in a strict cessationist kind of way and say, okay, yeah, knowledge and under, or wisdom and knowledge, those are revelatory gifts still. Others might say, well, no, those, that's kind of just more common use of the scripture. You're inclined to constantly be kind of stirring up, provoking to love and good works. Um, no, that, that, it's a good thought, though, because we hadn't talked about wisdom and knowledge in that gifting list. Daniel? Um, I think there's
1: two thoughts on that. The first is that when we talk about ceasing and continuation of baptism in those are ultimately the lenses under which we try and examine scripture and a really schema you know, to, to work within and we find more attractiveness more very you know, Um I think there's lots of problems I would have that are most likely have. <laughs> have some really good debates um, but i can't find that they have straight from scripture inside of the question i do have though is um, i grew up in the baptist tradition i have listened to a presbyterian rc scroll talk about his position and actually um, take on catholic and several other denominations and i I felt that he treated each one very fairly. I grew up with almost a strong ending of all the others. Is there a place that kind of understands the way we are kind of structured in our traditional understanding where, and again, we say Bible is true, but the word Baptist meaning. so. How do we come across that? Because I find the covenantal uh,
2: approach much more persuasive than what I'm finding in the Baptist.
0: Well, I I would probably say in defining a Baptist tradition, um, even your, our experience may be a very small sampling of the Baptist tradition because we might argue if we wanted to go back through Baptist history, you know, we'd land in a pretty rich and nuanced theological camp that maybe now some of the Baptists, Tradition is not so rich and nuanced theologically. Um, I think you're right, especially with the lens we're looking through, Baptist, Presbyterian, Continuationist, Cessationist, whatever labels we take on, if we're not careful, they do become not just a lens, but a preconceived notion that we're always looking to fight for, to prove. Um, And so I think it's helpful to, to keep coming back to what does the Bible say, and, and if that means I, it leaves me with a lot of questions, that's okay, because just let the Bible stir up questions. If they're my questions, because of my frame of how I view and think and have learned and thought I had arrived at, if all of that is shaky, so be it, uh, but let the Bible do that shaking because that's only actually going to solidify us more. Because now we're going to be able to say, "No, I, th- this is what I've seen, and here's why I think that." Well, are you this or that? And you might find yourself more and more saying, "Well, no, I, I see what you're. I see the strength of your argument there in your case, saying like uh, the the more covenantal camp, um, and I see how maybe the more dispensational camp has led me to a lot of fragmented thinking. And so I like this, but." I'm not willing to just pitch my tent there and become you because I think you're you're still missing something. I think I learned something over here that could help you. And that that's going to happen until heaven because <laughs> we're just we're just not all going to get to the same place in the same way at the same time. But I do want to be clear that like I said, on this matter, like these are the people you're in the trenches with, fighting against everything that's false and all darkness. It is, it really is behind closed doors where there's good-natured ribbing about. I can't believe you don't see it this way. Like, how come you, how come you don't get this? And um, it's just, it's that much of a secondary or down the line issue. Um, it's not affecting uh, core doctrines in any way. There's great unity. Uh, amongst those kinds of brothers. So no straw man at all. The, again, these are people that I read and, and learn from, um, but I'm not afraid to poke it with some questions and be like, I, I need more on that. And a lot of times you might find it. like They, they can give you more. Um, so don't be afraid to read some of those people and think, okay, that that's interesting. Now I've got a whole head full of stuff to think on uh, Paul, and then Becky. I
2: was just going
1: to say, I mean, I've been blessed by a number of friends within Sovereign Grace and whatnot that would be more in the continuationist camp, um, and lots of ribbing and fun, uh, and sharpening communication over the years in that regard. And um, One of the things that, well, listening to a conversation like this, you can either be thinking like, man, that made my day a lot easier because I just, like, I don't have to consider that anymore because now, like, okay, that's gone, like, okay, that's easy. Or you might be disappointed thinking, like, wait, what? Like, no, I was kind of looking forward to that. Um, whatever whatever your place may be, but in some of those conversations uh, with, with those biblically-muppeted friends that one of the things that's come up is just reoccurring there's very little difference. Um, If you believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word, which the, like, the, the scenario you described with continuationists that they would all be in that camp, and if you believe that there's no error in the Holy Spirit and that he's given to illuminate his word and apply it to your heart and to instruct you in all manner of godliness, that Um, In many of those conversations that you're able to just say, and I would say this to everyone here, that you're able to look at God's Word and then appeal to the Holy Spirit, whom there is no error, and say, teach me. Because the Holy Spirit's not going to respond with, whoops, just gave you a gift, didn't mean to do that, you prayed the wrong prayer, or whatever the case may be. uh, That the sufficiency and kindness of God to administer to us what we need to exercise life and godliness there's no, um, there's no error in that. And the sufficiency of scripture and God's ability to apply it to our hearts in everyday life is not nebulous. Uh, I was helped by that. Uh, those other gentlemen that I've talked to over the years have been likewise helped by just thinking of like, yeah, we may have different labels for things. We may believe differently in some of these different capacities, but, um, Like, the unity on essentially what we're trying to gather around it, that even though I disagree on what just happened, you may feel differently than me or vice versa, we can both go back to and say, is this in God's Word, and was it instructed by the Spirit as best we can discern, and we're both asking the same question, so we can both actually exercise obedience to God in the same way, Um, which... Are there differences for sure, but when you have the sufficiency of Scripture and a high view of the role and uh, sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, that so much error is cut from it, and um, God uses it. Yeah,
0: so don't, don't think this study is to arm you against this other position. It's, it's to show you that there's much wrestling to be done in Scripture, um, in order to draw right conclusions on some of these matters, Roy, one more thought here.
2: In my years of listening to dispensational speech, I came to the conclusion that there is no broad-reaching, ironclad dispensational system. There are as many systems as there are men espousing it, <laughs> and I would say that that likely is the same in covenantal circles. And to believe in a covenantal system. Does not believe that it does not say that you have to believe in baptism, which is my biggest.
0: Yeah, uh, dispensational definitely has a lot of cloudy areas where you can take a more nuanced position. Um, covenant theologians would probably be a little more strict on their definition of what it is, so that I would venture to say there's not as much wiggle room. Um, but as you said, anybody can grab any label and they are suddenly redefining it on their own by their position. So the labels are only helpful in broad ways. You're really best to dive in with people and say, what do you mean by that? You know, I do that often when people hear or they ask, well, is your church Calvinistic? I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, I (laughs) I, I, don't, I don't need any kind of badge, like, so I'm not going to say yes or no. I want to know what, what are you asking? What do you mean? Because, you know, you, you might have some notion that is not even accurate, so I, I don't want to answer a question and add to that inaccuracy. Like, what do you mean? Well, well, I'm more of a covenant theologian. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm a cessationist. What do you mean by that? And then you can get down to some kind of actual biblical conversation rather than somebody's understanding of it. Um, In this case, with prophecy, think through, can we change the definition? Because that's really at the core. Um, Practical outworkings are going to look very similar. Uh, We'll be away a couple of Sundays in the end of May. And one of those Sundays, we'll, we'll be with good friends in a sovereign grace church. And the flow of the service will be very similar to ours and they don't believe in in ongoing gift of healing, although supposedly it hasn't ceased. Um, they believe in the gift of prophecy, but there's not going to be any extra biblical revelation happening. Uh, it's going to look very much like I'm at home. Um, and if there is a, some kind of word given of exhortation that they want to call prophecy, I'm just going to listen to it like I would listen to the preacher preach. And if that's truth, then I'm going to ask the Spirit if I need to hear that today. Is that for me? Is that, is that, are they saying that for my good? Um, so keep it simple as you study things that can kind of seem challenging in Scripture. Um, next week, then, I thought we'd summarize a little quicker here this morning. Next week, we'll look at the second interpretive hurdle, and that's in changing another definition, the definition of tongues. Um, And so, continuationist is going to read in Acts 2, view it exactly as we've viewed it, uh, foreign languages, but later in Acts and in Corinthians, they're going to say, no, the definition is now changed. Um, And and it's going to be same song, second verse, in my mind, it's like, all right, here we go again, we don't like the way this is unfolding, and so we just change the definition. I I don't, I'm not easily swayed by that approach, so... I I need some more argument there, and I'll maybe try to help you see how church fathers, well, scripture, church fathers, reformers, uh, 1800 kind of post-Puritans, and modern church, Orthodox, Protestant has always defined tongues as foreign languages. And then maybe what you didn't know was that the father of Pentecostalism defined tongues as foreign languages, until it didn't work on the mission field and they redefined their church position. So some history there in helping us see, okay, why are we changing the definition of tongues from foreign languages to some kind of angelic slash unintelligible uh, glossolalia, uh, babbling as it would be called, not in a slanderous way, but it's simply by definition. So think through some tongues for next time and we'll wrestle with that.